This morning's scripture reading comes from select passages of Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 31. Verse 1. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. Verse 17. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Verse 22. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. This is the word of the Lord. For the past month, we've been looking at the book of Daniel, and the book of Daniel answers the question, what does it mean to be a Christian in a society that doesn't share our values, that doesn't share the same faith in the biblical God? And Daniel, he's, he's a member of, he's a Jewish member of an elite class of professionals in the nation of Babylon, in the empire of Babylon, the most powerful nation, the most powerful empire in the world to date. He was really brought there because the Jews were captured, the Jews were conquered. But you have to know that at this stage in history, a dark cloud was over the empire of Babylon, particularly over its king, Belshazzar. Because the Medes, the Persians, the Medo-Persian empire, their army was near and they were threatening Babylon. So Babylon was really completely defenseless. And so everybody in the capital was frantic. Everybody's nervous. Why? Because the Medes, because of fear of the Persians. It struck the capital. It struck the heart of the empire. It hit the leaders and and the ruling class and the elite and the government officials and the, the future of the country was at stake. So there was this cloud of uncertainty. There was this cloud of fear. And it's in this context, really, it's an amazing thing. It's in this context In the context of confusion and fear and anxiety, the king, Belshazzar, he holds this banquet, a big banquet. 
And in chapter 5, we see uh, Belshazzar, he holds this banquet, and he invites all the nobles and the ruling class of Babylon, but it's a very unusual party, incredibly unusual. In verse 2, he calls for the gold and the silver goblets. It was really the plunder that was taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. So it was stolen goods, the plunder, and he hasn't brought. This was taken by Nebuchadnezzar generations before. He brings this, and... Um, he has this brought to him, Nebuchadnezzar was his predecessor. Nebuchadnezzar was his father. And, and in verse 3, Belshazzar brings in the wives. He brings in the, the concubines. And he mixes the concubines and his wives with the nobles and, and the officials. Very atypical. This is a wild party. This is a wild It's filled with pleasure, filled with sensuality, filled with just drunkenness and uh, drinking from the temple goblets of, of God in, in the temple. They're drinking their wine and they're toasting their other gods. They're toasting their own gods with these goblets from the temple that was stolen from Jerusalem. So in the same room, together, they're celebrating sex. They're celebrating their, their financial power. They're celebrating their military conquest. They're celebrating the power and the might of their own gods. Look at the arrogance of Belshazzar. Look at the defiance of Belshazzar. And then all of a sudden, verse 5, fingers of a hand appear and start writing on the wall. That's what happens. And Belshazzar, he's a king. He's watching and he's terribly upset. The text says in verse 6, his face was pale, he was frightened, his knees knocked, and he actually, his legs gave way, which probably means he fell apart. He collapsed. And so what does he do? He does what most leaders in our, in our country do. Most leaders in the world, modern leaders do, uh, verses 7 to 9, he calls in the elite, he calls in the educated. He says, I want an explanation for this. Help me to understand this. He calls in the enchanters and the diviners and the astrologers. And what do they say? What does he say? He says, I'm going to clothe you in purple. I'm going to put a gold chain around your neck. I'm going to make you the third highest person in the empire if you're able to interpret this. But even the wisest people, even the wisest people in Babylon could not decipher what the words meant. But then in verses 10 to 12, the queen comes. The queen comes and he says, you need to come for Daniel. You need to call for Daniel. And in verse 16, the king makes this offer to Daniel. He says, I will give you a purple robe. I will give you a gold chain around your neck. I will make you the third highest in the kingdom, uh, in the kingdom of Babylon. But Daniel, he refuses the rewards. First, he brings up a comparison between his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, Remember, Israel gained a lot of ground under Nebuchadnezzar. You know, we, we just learned about Nebuchadnezzar, and Israel gained a lot of ground under him. Nebuchadnezzar either repented or at least supported the faith, of faith in a biblical God, but Daniel, he says, he indicts Belshazzar. And he says, I'm going to interpret for you the writing on the wall. And just like that, Belshazzar's reign, his kingdom is over. What does it mean? We're going to look at some, that's a summary. We're going to look at some major implications that come out of this text. First, what it shows us is that uh, this text shows us the desperation of our souls. Mene, mene, mene. God has numbered your days of rain and has brought it to an end. The banquet tells us this deep need that we have for significance in our lives. They bring the gold and the silver goblets from the temple. Why? Because it's a way of remembering how great they are. It's a way of reminding each other how mighty they are. Why this wild party? Maybe it was denial. Maybe he was in denial of what the Medes and the Persians were about to do. Maybe he's just coping with it, so he needs to drink. We understand that. We know that. 
Or maybe he's just dealing with the nobles to kind of stave off mutiny. He wants to kind of hold off or prevent rebellion. Or maybe it's a way of saying, guys, don't worry about it. I got it. I'm under control. No one can stop me. I am the king of Babylon. The point is, the closer you get to death, and Belshazzar knows that he's at risk, the closer you get to death, the more frantic our lives are. And we're searching for ways of coping with reality. I'm going to bring this home to us. Help us to understand this a little bit. Bring it home to us. Why are we so wrapped up in our relational lives? Why are we so wrapped up in our sex lives? Why is it that as you get older, you get more frantic with drinking? You get more frantic with luxurious pleasure? Why are we so gripped by our wealth? You know, Ernest Becker, he was an author and a Pulitzer Prize winner. His most famous book, it was published in 1973, and he won the Pulitzer Prize actually shortly after he passed away. Um, It's called The Denial of Death. And it's out of print. It was out of print at one point. It's making a comeback today, not coincidentally. Uh, but in the denial of death, Becker says this. He says, human beings are dealing with, co- they're dealing with, they're coping with the reality that eventually we're all going to die. Everyone in this room, somehow, some way, some, some form is, sh- is, is dealing with the fact that one day there's nothingness in our lives. We're going to all pass away. Every one of us is dealing with that, and we're constantly living. We're constantly asking, what's the point of my life? What's the point of this, these short 80 or 90 years of my life? What's the point of this? And so we're living life frantically. We're frantic about our lives. Think about this. If death is the end, if at the end of death there is nothing, so when you die there is nothing and there is nothingness at the end, then there is no reasonable difference from living a good life or living a bad life. There's no reasonable difference between hugging somebody and punching somebody. It's all the same because in the end, it amounts to nothing. If we're just chance atoms that have randomly collided at some point in history and by chance randomly appear to become us, who we are, everything's going to pass away. What's the significance then of our lives? There's no meaning to our lives. There's no meaning to our culture. There's no meaning to civilization. And Becker says that human beings, there are three main ways of dealing, coping with all of this. And guess what? We see all three things in this party, in this amazing party that Belshazzar throws. Becker says, we're living frantically. And so we're confused and we're frustrated because we have this desire to fight off the reality. We have the desire to cope with the reality. We're, we're in denial of the fact that in the end, we are absolutely insignificant. We are insignificant. Remember the movie Ants? Some of you guys may have watched the animated movie. It came out a long time ago called Ants. It stars Woody Allen. Now, if you know anything about Woody Allen, Woody Allen is a director. He's a writer. He's a social commentator. So him being the star of this movie, it's not something that was just intended for children. But it's about this ant, right? Not too thrilling, right? It's about this ant, Z, coming to grips with the reality of who he is, self-discovery. He wants to find himself, who he really is. And so in the beginning of this movie, he's lying on a couch at this ant psychiatrist table in his office. He's lying on the couch, and he says this. He says, you know, I always tell myself, there's got to be something better out there. But maybe I think too much. I got to believe there's some place out there that's better than this. The whole system, this ant system, you know, of drones kind of just marching along. He says, this whole system, it makes me feel insignificant. And so this psychologist says, excellent, you made a real breakthrough. And Z says, I have. And the psychologist says, yes, Z, you are insignificant. 
you are insignificant. Ernest Becker says, civilization has developed an elaborate mechanism of defense against the reality that one day every one of us is going to die and we are going to be rendered insignificant. And he says there's three ways we do it. The first way is verses 2 and 3, the gold and the silver, the wealth, the power. We're constantly trying to use our gifts We're constantly trying to use our gifts to create our own reality. We're trying to find our own destiny, self-discovery, power, wealth, sex, relationships. We're finding a way to separate ourselves from everybody else next to us. We're trying to earn our immortality through our own unique gifts. You ever read the Epic of Gilgamesh? Famous, famous ancient Sumerian tale, the Epic of Gilgamesh. He says, I want to be written on, in history, on the lapis lazuli. Now, it's kind of like an inside comment. You have to have read the book to understand what he's saying. But really what he's saying is, I want to be known someday. Someday I want to be remembered in history. I want to be forever known. So his, unique, his uniqueness, his exploits, it's what sets him apart from all other heroes in that tale. But there's a problem because we all want that. But there's a problem. How do you justify yourself? How do you justify yourself? There's so many problems with that. Human beings are constantly looking for affirmation. In fact, every incentive plan, every compensation plan, every bonus plan, every reward plan, every reward offer that you could ever receive in this world is built around what? Justifying. To say you mean something. But you can't justify yourself. You say, well, you know, not me. I don't really care what people think about me. No way. You do care about what people think about you. The very nature of being a good comedian, the very nature of being a good author, the very nature of being a songwriter, the very nature of being a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, the very nature of being a parent over your children, a wife to your husband, a husband to your wife, a son or a daughter to your parents, an employee to your boss. The very nature of that hinges on what? You need somebody, we all need somebody outside of ourselves telling us, you are valuable, you are significant, you are, to validate us. Every one of us needs that. We're desperate for that. That's what Ernest Becker is saying. But who sets the standards for this is the measure of goodness? Who is good enough to judge another person's work? Are you? Is your boss? Who is the judge? In Mark chapter 10, you have the narrative of the rich young ruler this rich young weller who's wealthy and he's young and he's powerful. We all want that. He comes up to, this guy has it. He comes up to Jesus and he says, good teacher. And Jesus looks at him and says, why do you call me good? Because what he's saying is, there must be an absolute perfect person out there who can judge and validate and say, and if I can get his approval, if I can get his acceptance, if he says, you are good because I am good and I am the measure, if I can just know him, then he would shape my life forever. That's what he's saying. Here you have a king. He's displaying, he's boasting about his wealth, boasting about his might, boasting about his power, boasting about his conquests. He's trying to set himself apart from everyone else around him. That's the banquet. That's the wildness of this party. Becker says the gold and the silver, that's one way that we do it. Another way we do it, another way we deal with the mortality of ourselves, the nothingness of our lives, the insignificance in our lives, in our soul. Becker calls it the romantic solution. In verse 2, he brings his wives and his concubines to this party. To feel significant, we fix ourselves immediately on another person, the form of a love object. You ever listen to 80s love songs? You know, 80s love songs, Chicago. You're the meaning in my life. 
You're the inspiration. You bring feeling to my life. You're the inspiration. I want to have you near me. I want to have you hear me saying that no one needs you more than I need you. Is that right? No one needs you more than I need you. Becker says, in this case, you find salvation in another person. That's why we're so desperate for relationships. But think about this. If you're desperate for relationships, and in the end there's nothing, we have today what we call apocalyptic sex, right? Because we want intimacy without commitment. What's the point of committing to anybody when there's nothingness in the end? So we want intimacy, the intimacy, the thrill, the pleasure of sex, and, and yet we don't want the commitment with that, the responsibility that comes with that. You want somebody, in the end, you want somebody that loves you. You want somebody that says, you are okay, you are beautiful, I love you to the end. But think about this. If you think about this, um, it's impossible because how can anybody support every one of your expectations? Everyone here is broken. So all of us by nature are insufficient. And we're certainly by nature insufficient to fulfill another person's expectations and validation of themselves. Do you understand that? We're all broken. We're always needy. And so that's the romantic solution. The third solution, Becker says the third solution is uh, what he calls the religious solution. Verse 4, this king, he takes the goblets from the temple of, of Jerusalem. These are things that were sacred to God. He takes these goblets, pours wine in it, and toasts to his own gods with it. He's being religious to his own God. He's paying homage to his own gods. It goes like this. If I obey the rules, if I'm successful, if I obey the commands of my God, then I will be deemed acceptable. If I'm successful, if I conquer, if I do all these things in the name of my God, then, yes, I will be acceptable. I'm a good person. He will love me. But what happens? You become nasty. You become jealous. You become competitive. You start looking around for approval. You're constantly, you become more a slave to approval of other people, more slave to acceptance of other people. You're bent on conquering. You're bent on winning. Becker says this, the closer you come to death, the more frantic everybody gets in any of these solutions. In fact, we we don't just hinge on one of these solutions. We hinge on all the solutions. And we oscillate back and forth from any one of these solutions. And Becker actually says, he says, the modern man is drinking and drugging himself out of his own awareness or maybe shopping himself out of his own awareness, whatever he can do to forget the notion that he is insignificant. In other words, we're deeply aware. We're deeply aware of our insignificance. And we're locked into some form of solution and we're oscillating between solutions. The banquet shows us how desperate our lives are without God in our lives. The banquet shows us how desperate life is without God. It's frantic, it's confusing, it's frustrating. Tekel, tekel, you've been weighed out and you found yourself lacking. That's the word of Daniel. That's what he says. Second thing we learn is the sufficiency then in knowing God. If you're desperate, if there's a desperation in your soul of your insignificance, There's a sufficiency in knowing who God is and who you are in light of him. He's all you need. Trust in him. Trust his word. Verse 17, Daniel comes up and uh, he says right off the bat, look at the confidence of Daniel. Look at the confidence of Daniel. Look at the poise of Daniel. He says, you can keep the God. You can keep these gifts for yourself. You can give these rewards to somebody else. That's what he says. The king says, I'm going to give you a purple robe. I'm going to give you a gold chain. 
He says, I'm going to make you the third highest person in the country. And Daniel said, you know, basically what he's saying is, I can give you what? The purple road. I can give you status. He says, I can give you the gold chain. I can give you wealth. He says, I can give you, I can make you the third highest person in the land. I can give you power, status, wealth, power. We all want that. We all need that, we say. Daniel says, you can keep those things for yourself. Look at the poise of Daniel. Look at the confidence of Daniel. He says, you can keep it for yourself. You can give these rewards to somebody else. But I will interpret this for you. He's not just being humble. He's making a statement. Think about this. Every time something happens in this country, they bring in the world's experts first. Just like modern times. Anytime something goes wrong, we bring in the experts first. And the experts are confounded. They disagree. They fight with each other. One expert will say, oh, this is the reason. The blue states... The blue state experts will say, oh, the red state experts are the problem. The red state experts look at the blue state experts and say they're the problem. And they're constantly fighting and they're arguing, conflicting, overturning one another's thoughts and ideals. Daniel's ultimately saying, he's saying this. Verses 18 to 21, he says this. You should be building your life on a pattern of humility towards God first, not on these worldly experts. Each time they're presented with a problem, Daniel comes up to Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, I have something to say to you. And then he says the same thing to Belshazzar, and he says the same thing to us. He says, it's God. It's him. He is ruler. He is sovereign over all. Go to him. Listen to God. Humble yourself before God. Trust God. Trust what he says. Trust his word. Forget the self-help books. Forget the soap operas. Forget the seminars. Forget the mystical meditation. Your life is going awry because you need a real king in your life. You are not the real king in your life. You need a real king in your life. Submit to this king. And unless you take the Bible seriously, take God's word seriously. Unless you completely take God's word Take him at his word. Unless you trust his word, unless you submit to his word, even the parts that you don't like, especially the parts that you don't like, you can't have a God that you didn't make up for yourself. Unless you have a God that argues with you through scripture, unless you have a God that disapproves of you sometimes in scripture, what's a relationship? You ever go on a first date? Most of us have gone on a first date, right? You go on a first date, right? You go on a first date. First date is never real. You never get to know a person on a first date right? Because what? A first date is what? That person, both sides, are basically trying to show you the best part of themselves without any of the mess, without any of the brokenness. So in actuality, that first date is a fake date. You're really just showing each other what you want them to think of you. You're not showing them them the reality. It isn't until you start to argue that you actually have a relationship, because then you start to really come to understand the other person what they're really thinking, what really drives them, what they really value. If you're married to somebody that never makes him mad, I'm going to submit to you, you'll never know who that person is, and you don't know who that person is. There's not a single person, talk to any of the married couples here, there's not a single married couple here that says, I've never fought with my spouse. I can guarantee you, right, every spouse has fought with their spouse. Every person has fought with their spouse who's married here right? And they know their spouses very well. They know their spouses better than anybody in this room. You see, a true relationship comes with arguing and conflicting, sometimes contradicting, countering. That's a relationship. Otherwise, it's not real. So do you want to know the real God or do you want to make an idol for yourself? Go to the Word. 
Don't try to interpret God on your own and hear with only the pieces that you want to hear. You see, then you're just like an enchanter. You're just like a diviner. You're just like an astrologer in this text. You see, the Bible's saying in the most technical, in the most technically advanced, most scientifically advanced, most culturally advanced age in the history of the human world, we are just as foolish without God. We're just like an enchanter or a diviner or an astrologer. You see that? God's word is all you need. God is all you need. Right? Daniel says, I don't want your rewards, but I'm going to tell you about God's word. This is what you need. The third thing this teaches us is that uh, is the greatest impediment then in knowing God. Right? There's a sufficiency in knowing God. Well, then what's the greatest impediment to knowing God? It's our pride. In verse 22, what's the problem? What's the actual problem with Belshazzar? It's his pride. There are lots of people here still struggling with Christianity because of words like wrath, because of words like repentance, because of words like uh, prayer, confession. We don't like that. It offends us. You don't get the need for that, and here's why. It's because you don't get your sin. You don't understand sin. If someone says to you, you know, if, if you, without an understanding of sin, if someone comes up to you and says to you, you know, God loves us, God forgives us, he loves to forgive, God sacrificed, God died for us, and you don't really get sin, then why would you even be moved? Why would there be any reason to be moved by that? It isn't until you fundamentally and foundationally understand the depths of who you are and your own sinfulness that God's grace and his love and his just, you know, treasuring you becomes so valuable and, and it and just explodes us into joy. You will never experience the joy of being in Christ until you see what it means, what Christ died for, your sin. You see that? You'd say, why does he have to sacrifice? I don't get it. I, I mean, I understand he died, but why do you have to die? Because you don't understand your sin. You have to look at your pride. We all have to deal and cope with our pride. Daniel explains that, verse 21. He says, he, Nebuchadnezzar, he's talking about the history. He says, Belshazzar, you knew about this. Nebuchadnezzar was driven away until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the, kings, the kingdoms of men, and he set over them anyone that he wishes. Daniel says, you knew this. You knew all about this history, and yet it hasn't humbled you. There are lots of people in this room who assume that they submitted to God. Jesus says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. In other words, didn't I submit to you? Lord, Lord. They're emotional about it. And they're calling him Lord. They're calling him God. And he says, yet I never knew them. I never knew them. That's what he says. What is pride? Pride is simply not seeing that absolutely everything that you are and everything that you have has been given to you by God's sheer grace. By God's sheer grace, he's given it to you. They say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all these things? Let us in, let us in. Jesus says, don't you get it? It's not about what you've done. Even what you've accomplished, I gave it to you. I did it for you. Don't you get it? You don't get it. I don't know you. I never knew you. Away from me. In other words, the reason why we struggle with our insignificance, the reason why we struggle with our meaning is because, you know, for Daniel, God is sovereign. He's king over all. That means you're looking for meaning? God is meaning. 
He says you've got to trust his word. You want power in your life? You're talking to power. Not just a power. You're talking to power himself. You want power? You've got to go to God. You've got to trust his word. He says God is the Lord of heaven. That means you're looking for eternity? God is eternity. You're looking for peace? God is peace. The reason why Nebuchadnezzar struggled with his insignificance, the reason why he was having nightmares and he needed people to come up, these nightmares were about people rising up against him and he needed somebody to help him to explain it, right? He was trying to prove himself over and over. He felt like he earned his place. He felt like he owned his throne. It was his and he accomplished it. He felt like he had done everything and it was on his own and it was his. And so he killed people and he fought and he conquered. He was powerful, but he was so insecure. He was so insecure, so accomplished and yet so insecure always because he did not and he could not see that God had given all these things to him by sheer grace. I told this story before in the past. You know, um, when I was in seminary and, and learning, uh, my professor had challenged me because he knew I was running this summer ministry that takes about two and a half weeks of my time. And, uh, it, you know, sacrificing, it's very, very rare for anyone to just take, get up and take two and a half weeks off every year. Right? And then on top of that, try to have, uh, scrounge around some days for a vacation and things like that. And so my professor, he was teaching an urban missional, miss, missiology class, and he says to me, he says, you know, um, you say you love the city, you say you trust in God's power, you say you trust. He said, you know, Donnie, who gave you your job? And it was so convicting because you know the answer, and it's so convicting. You know where he's going with this. He says, I want you to, he says, I know you take one week. You take about a week or two days every day, every year uh, to kind of support this ministry. I want you to go to your boss. I don't want you to ask for time. I want you to go to him, and I want you to tell him I'm taking two and a half weeks off. Every year at this time, no matter what project is running, no matter what's falling apart, I'm taking this time off. And I looked at him, probably like he was an alien, you know, and, and he says, you're looking at me strange. Who gave you your job? That conviction sets in automatic. It's automatic. He says, who gave you these gifts? Who gave you your job? And you're worried about asking for an additional week. I want you to tell him you're taking that week off, that extra week. Until you acknowledge that everything that you have in your life is by the sheer grace of God, you're going to constantly just work to earn you're going to constantly be frantic. You're going to assume that you're not that bad. You're never going to get your sin. Daniel, he actually says, Nebuchadnezzar was like a wild animal. Verse 21, he says he was a wild animal. The way he was frantically trying to prove himself and conquer over other people, that's the way he proved himself, by stepping over other people. He had this need to accomplish, and as a result, he's always battling his insignificance, the fear of not living up. That's us. And so we need to conquer. We need to do these things. And so that's why we need to be in a relationship. That's why we need to lie to cover over ourselves, our flaws. That's why we push other people down. That's why we need to get ahead all the time in our careers. Why? What's the root? It's our pride. It's the root of our battles inside. It's the root of our fighting outside. It's the root of all racism. It's the root of all bigotry. It's the root of all chauvinism. It's the reasons why we step all over people. It's the reason why you worry. You know why you worry? You know why you're anxious? Because you're uncertain. And you want control, and you know you don't have it inside. You're insignificant. You know why uh, you get angry? Because what you're saying is, I had a plan for my life. I had a plan, and it was supposed to go this way. And it's going this way instead. It's taking a left turn. That's God's fault. You see that? Life shouldn't go this way because I deserve better. That's why we're angry. Because we have no control. Because we're insignificant. 
Even your guilt, for those of us who suffer with guilt, there are those of us who have chronic guilt, right? Why do you feel guilty? Because no matter how much you hear preached up here in your community, no matter how much you hear God loves to forgive, you still in your heart want to earn it. You want to earn it. It's the root of everything. Think about your cynicism, right? Cynicism is like never being happy with anything that's good in life, right? Why are we cynical? Because we're too proud to say that I actually enjoy something that I didn't create, that I didn't discover. That's the root of cynicism, right? This is why Jesus says, he who humbles himself will be exalted, and he who exalts himself will be humbled. That's the third thing we learn. The fourth thing we learn, we're going to rapidly start coming to a close here. The fourth thing we, we learn is that we're all drinking from the goblets of the temple of God while toasting other gods. That sounds like a long point, kind of uncharacteristic of me, right? I usually kind of boil things down to one word. I'm going to say it again. We're all drinking. We're all drinking from the goblets from the temple of God while toasting our own gods. You say, really? What does that mean? Here's what they did. They brought these gold and silver goblets in that they stole, really, from the temple in Jerusalem, that they stole from the biblical God, and they started drinking... Spiritual act of defiance. They pour wine into it and they're toasting their own gods in God's face. That's essentially what they're doing, right? And uh, you're going to say, well, that sounds sacrilegious. That sounds blasphemous. I've never done that. I would never do that. You want, I want you to think about this because this is exactly what we do every day. This is exactly what we do. Think about the last time you came to church saying that you came to worship God but you really came to meet somebody else. Think about the last time that um, you used these amazing gifts that God has given you, your intelligence, your beauty, your life, your family upbringing, some of you, your education, your athletic ability. Think about all these gifts that God has given you. And yet, we use it to further our own careers. We use it to conquer over other people. We use it to boast about our wealth because we have this deep desperation in our souls. And God is not sufficient. His word is not sufficient for us. You see that? And so what happens is we have this impediment in our lives. It's pride, right? And so what does that pride do? We toast to other gods, stealing from his goblets from the temple. That's what we're doing. These gifts, these amazing gifts that God has given you. But to gain a sense of worth for ourselves, we serve our bosses, right? We lie. Sometimes we cheat. Sometimes we do horrible things. But sometimes we just overwork. Sometimes we just please, we're just working to please other people. We use our gifts, our resourcefulness, our intelligence, our beauty, all of our skills. That's what we do, right? We use things like our children, our spouse to give us. These are gifts that God has given you. Trust me. My wife and I, we've been trying to have children for years. Children are a gift. I look at these parents sometimes out in the crowd and they look like zombies, right? But I'm telling you, children are a gift. But we use them for our own sense of worth. We use it for our own sense of significance. You're toasting other gods. That's what you're doing. I'm going to keep going. Think about the last time you've used your influence 
Think about the last time you've even used your friends as a way to convince yourself that you are acceptable. You know what religion is? Religion is I give God a good record, right? So whatever God that you serve, as long as you give that God a good record, right? That means for if, you're, if your God is uh, wealth, then you need to be successful. You're going to work and work and work and work. If your God is a relationship, then that relationship has to, you know, you have to get a relationship and it has to be a perfect relationship. You're going to work and work and work and work. You get that? You're toasting the other gods with your gifts. That's what you're doing. Because if you do it well, then that God owes you. And you can go even further. Then God himself owes you because I'm a good person. Nobody here aspires to be evil. Every one of us aspires to be good and acceptable to God, right? If I could just do, follow all the rules, obey all the commandments, then God owes me. And then if I have a bad life, then I can blame him. You get that? That's religion. At the heart of religion, that's what religion is. You're just using God while you're toasting other gods. God isn't what you want. It's something else that you want. It's a sense of worth, a sense of significance, a sense of meaning and purpose. You're toasting other gods while you're using God. You see that? That's what you're doing. And you're using your gifts, which are sacred to God. You're using your body, which is sacred to God. You're using your looks, which is sacred to God. You're using these gifts of relationships that have been given to you, right? Sacred to God. Religion makes us more like Belshazzar. Being religious makes us more like Belshazzar. The gospel is this. God, through Jesus Christ, has given me a perfect record. I'm already accepted. God has loved you. Jeremiah 31, I love you because I love you for all eternity. My love goes and extends beyond the everlasting. I love you because I love you. My loving kindness extends beyond all generations. Everlasting. That's what he says. And if that's the case, he has given me a perfect record. I did not deserve it. I receive it only by faith, and I live it out out of gratitude, out of a response to God. What happens is then you see who God is. Then you see who you are. God is king. God is gracious. You see who you really are. You understand the depths of sin. You see that? Lastly, the fingers of God, the writings on the wall. This is what the writing on the wall tells us. In the party, you see this great desperation. Ernest Becker, he says, the best existential analysis of the human condition leads us directly to the problem of God and faith. In other words, what he's saying is, because there's a sense of insignificance, Anyone here who's ever experienced a sense of what's my life worth, where is there meaning in my life, it's automatically because there's a problem of God and faith in our lives. Remember, he's an agnostic. This is a secular man saying this. How do you find it? How do you find worth? How do you find significance? Some people will look at this lesson and say, well, you got to be like Daniel. You got to go to the powers that be. You got to be poised. You got to be confident. And you got to say, you got to show up to these parties and you got to say, I know you're partying and you're having sex like crazy. And you know what? One day it's all going to come to an end. So wipe that smile off your face. Stop doing what you're doing because God is coming and you're going to be overturned. But that's not what Jesus says. <laughs> Jesus Christ completely reinterprets this passage and it's not what he says. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is sending the disciples out. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus is sending the disciples out as well, 
right? And when he sends them out, he says, I want you to cast out demons. I want you to cure diseases. I want you to preach grace. I want you to heal the sick. And when they come back in chapter 10, they return with joy because what they're saying is they said, even the demons submit to you. People are being liberated. People's lives are changing. They're being transformed. And right after that, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus Christ himself casts out a demon. He casts out a demon himself. But, but some of the people, they're looking at that and they accuse him. They say, you know, he must be a demon. And some of the people say, well, we need to test him. We need to see what he's really about. We need to test him. And Jesus, it says Jesus knew their hearts. And he says this, I want you to know that if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God the writing on the wall has come to you. What does that mean? Because it sounds indicting. Daniel was indicting the king. Jesus is indicting us. He says, the kingdom of God, if I, if you see demons being cast out by me, the fingers of God are writing and he's writing to you. That's what he says. What is he saying? He says, you're going to be divided. You are going to be undone. You are going to be torn apart. In other words, just as Belshazzar is partying frantically, unaware of the doom, he sees the writing on the wall, but he's unaware of the doom that's going to come to him. He says many people today are unaware that Satan's kingdom has ended as well. Satan's reign is doomed. And what's their writing on the wall? How do we know today that Satan's reign is ended? Jesus says, you are the writing on the wall. Christians are the writing on the wall. Every time you help somebody come to repentance, that's the writing on the wall. It's Satan's doom. Every time you help to heal the poor and the sick, that's the writing on the wall. Some of you are doctors. Every time you heal the sick, that's the writing on the wall. Every time you do it. Every single time when you could have told a lie, you tell the truth. That's the writing on the wall. Satan's power is ended. Every single time when you could have made more money by going a certain direction, you choose not to and to sacrifice, that's the writing on the wall. Every single time that somebody's life is being transformed, every single time that somebody in need is provided for, every time that somebody who has been emotionally hurting is being healed in the church, that is the writing on the wall. He says, you are the writing on the wall. You are the finger. The fingers of God are writing. And what do you think he's writing? He's writing your story. You are the writing on the wall. It's one thing to say. It's one thing to speak. It's another thing to write because when you write something, it's there for all time. You ever write something that you regret? You ever post something on Twitter that you regret? You'll never get it back. You'll never get it. It's stored somebody, somewhere for all time. And if somebody wanted to dig it up, they could. Think about that for those of you who want to be politicians. Think about that, right? It will be stored for all time. They will look it up because they will challenge it. They will test it. They will contradict you with it. So it's one thing to say your kingdom has ended. It's another thing to say you are the writing on the wall. You are the evidence that God's power is active and on the move here in this city. Here's a question for you, okay? Because God is saying, Jesus Christ is saying, my people, their lives have changed. They no longer find a sense of insignificance in their lives. As a result, because they know they're not insignificant, they're not hurting, and as a result, they're loving. And they're serving and they're trusting, and they're devoting themselves to his word. This is the hope of God crashing down on the world. That's what Jesus is saying. Here's a question for you. 
are you a written testimony of God's grace? Are you a written testimony of God's grace? Are you so different that you've become a sign of the kingdom of God? Is your presence, is your character representative of kingly presence, kingly love, kingly service, kingly work, the work of the king, Jesus Christ? How does that happen? You can't do it just by being like Daniel. You can't do that by just trying harder because then you're like Belshazzar. Then you're just working, you're laboring, you're just working and working and working to gain the acceptance, to gain the approval, to gain validation. You see, you can't do that just by trying. Later on in chapter 22 of Luke, there's another feast. It's very unlike Belshazzar's feast. Jesus Christ is sitting with his disciples. And this is what he says. He says, I eagerly desire to eat this Passover meal with you. It's another feast. I eagerly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. In other words, Belshazzar, Belshazzar, he partied unaware of his wrath, unaware of his doom. But Jesus Christ says, I am eagerly waiting. I am anticipating to eat this meal. I'm anticipating this party. Why? Because I am certain of my doom. I am certain of the wrath of God in my life. Jesus Christ is the king above all kings but he gave up his glory. Philippians chapter 2 says he emptied himself. He poured out his glory. You see? And on the cross, he became completely insignificant. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? You know what that's saying? He's saying the Father has turned his, way, his face from me. He's rejected me. If the great need, the great desperation of the human soul is to be known and to be remembered, Jesus Christ says, I've become forgotten. I've become unremembered. I've become rejected. I've become cast out. Why? So that you would become known. So that you would be remembered. So that you would be brought in and acceptable and treasured. Jesus Christ says, I, you know, he says, I'm forsaken. It means my life is, if God has forsaken me, if separation from God, if intimacy with God is ultimate meaningfulness, separation from God is what? hell. Jesus Christ is on the cross. He says, I'm suffering hell. God has left me. God has departed from me. He's turned his face from me. My life is utterly meaningless. My life is nothingness. Why? Because he treasures you. You want to know what validates you? You want that somebody outside of you that's saying you are treasured, you are loved, you are so significant that I would die for you? We all want that. Jesus Christ says, I did die for you. You are my treasure. You are my heart. I came, I humbled, I poured myself out till every last drop of me was gone. I emptied myself for you so you could have everything that I deserve. I'm going to take everything that you deserved. You see that? That's meaningfulness. He did that for you. He did that for us. At the Last Supper, Jesus Christ says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is being poured out for you. That's what he says. In other words, I became insignificant and I suffered and I died for you. There's the validation that you need. There's the love that you need. There's that somebody on the outside who happens to be the king of the universe who's saying, you are so loved, I'd rather die for you than live without you. Do you understand that? And then he says, in that feast, he says, one day we will drink this cup again. We're going to party again at the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. That's what he says. One day I'll be back. And then there will be a party 
above all parties. You see that? Do you trust that? Wait for it. Be patient. Think about your character. What's going to change your character? What's going to, you, gotta, you can't hammer yourself into changing your character. It won't last, and you're going to be frustrated because you're going to be so, you're going to come to grips with your mortality. You're going to come to grips with how much of a, how flawed you are, how broken you are. But if you see that in that brokenness, Jesus Christ has compassion. He says, you know what? I've died to give you life. I transferred my richness, right, my riches, that you will be rich in me. You will have everything that I deserve. And in union with me, hidden with me, together with me, the Spirit comes in and dwells in you, and he gives you power and strength, and he reminds you of who you really are. Broken, but in Christ, everything. There is your meaning. Will you trust that? Let's pray.